0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rewild My Bio. I am here with my co-host, Richard Vicynick. Richard, what's happening? Oh, happy to be uh, sitting on the mic again. Yeah, feels yeah. good. Feels like it's been a while. It does you've been getting your hands dirty? I've uh, seen I've seen testimonial be online, but I've also been chatting with you, and uh, yeah, getting your hands dirty out out in the garden and that. Yeah. And uh, how's that feeling?
1: Well, you know, it's uh, it's both. An encouraging and humbling uh, experience so far in terms mm-hmm. of uh, what's growing, what's not growing, what's working, what's what not, what's not working. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, overall just getting in the soil, you know, getting it under the nails, mm-hmm. breathing it in, affecting that microbiome.
0: Yeah, exactly. Good stuff, and that's a nice segue into kind of introducing what we're talking about today, and that is the microbiome. So I was super pumped to finally dive into this topic, as I'm sure you were as well. And uh, yeah, I think we've got a great episode today. I don't know what, you, what your thoughts are.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's very informative. It, it brings a, a cool, a holistic perspective to um, the health of the human body, the health right. of the earth, and how they're inter uh, interrelated. Uh, yeah, it's just a really good episode. Kim Bretz is a wealth of information for right. sure.
0: She is, and I'd like to thank you for setting this episode up. So without any further ado, let's introduce our guest today, and that is Dr. Kim Brettz. She is a naturopathic doctor working and living in the Waterloo region here in Ontario, Canada. She is a speaker, consultant, and adjunct faculty at the University of Waterloo in the pharmacy uh, department. She is a passionate international speaker, as I've already mentioned, but she has also presented to multiple corporations and agencies and is a guest lecturer for Canadian universities in the areas of health promotion, functional foods, and natural health care products. She also runs continuing education for healthcare professionals in the area of the microbiota, strain-specific probiotics, and gastrointestinal health. For six years, Kim was part of the Human Nature Network, a nationally syndicated radio program through the CHUM Radio Group, speaking in the area of women's health. She is an ardent supporter of education, and as you'll hear today interprofessionalism. So for this intro, I actually thought I would start by saying um, why I'm interested in this topic is because it's still one of those areas that we can see we still know so very little. And, you know, sometimes how confusing what we know is when it comes to putting it into practice. So, I think this is definitely not a one size fits all field and it's most definitely in my opinion it calls for that multidisciplinary or interprofessional approach. So, I mean it was just great, you know, you guys sit here as naturopaths and I think really leading the way with a lot of the public discourse and knowledge around uh, probiotics specifically when it comes to supplementation. So, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that specifically.
1: Um, it was just a good episode that way, just to kind of bring in how, uh, the microbiome and understanding it or trying to get a handle on it is such a fascinating and exploding area of research that it's drawing in on so many facets of, um, medical professions, uh, industries, right. all that sort of stuff. Right, and, right. and it has a real impact. Um, and so to have that dialogue around how, uh it is interdisciplinary is important it's kind of interconnecting us again
0: right without a doubt and it's 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 causing a paradigm shift right uh and the paradigm shift we're seeing at in so many different levels of society right now um and i mean i'm not to take too much away from this episode but you know um i think that we're in this interesting time with the coronavirus pandemic and i mentioned that you know i I believe that we're making progress in understanding this inextricable link between humans and the natural world. And we're understanding that through the microbiome. And then, of course, something like coronavirus comes around and we're all wearing masks now and staying distant and staying indoors and sanitizing our hands. So just an interesting time to be talking about this. And I've got Mm -hmm. a lot of hope that I still think that people, uh, this stuff makes sense. And I guess um, what I want to do is throw out, this is such a, I think, a very practical episode. There's so much in here and it might be one of those episodes where you you hit rewind every now and then if you really want to get some stuff. So check out everything in the show notes. There's resources there for you guys um, and all of uh, Kim's information as far as getting in contact with her will be there as well. But what I wanted to say was a few of the practical tips that I went through when making show notes and I just thought I would share them here. And uh, these are practical tips to help us benefit our microbiome and this is not like a one-size-fits-all approach it's going to be different for everybody but i still think these are really important ones to touch on so getting outdoors being super important using less chemicals in deliberate ways so avoiding using chemicals that are going to kill more of our bacteria so say using hand soap over say hand sanitizer and then eating for a microbiome which is really awesome and we could spend a whole episode just talking about that um, and then I ask the question about fiber which is a rabbit hole in itself but um, you know and I, I and I bring that up because yeah I've definitely um, you know having been eating say in a more ancestral or even like a paleo diet way in the past having done that wrong or I've done done a few different protocols say where uh, I've had low amounts of fiber and I know that doesn't work for me individually so I think it's again it's another one of those doesn't not one size-fits-all approach but it's something important and it's really interesting how fiber can feed our microbiome so yeah again i don't
1: yeah just the limitations on something as simple as what we think is fiber is simple and so uh, i think this episode does a really good job it's like it's it's honest in the sense that it says Mm, hey we're learning all this stuff we we know a little bit but we also realize how much we don't know um and you know it brings that whole element of curiosity and sort of this new frontier, which is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we've got some of those tips that come up in the episode of how to engage and even just start thinking about your microbiome. So even the way she phrases it makes, has made my relationship to eating a little bit different Yeah, and a new layer to it. I'm like, yeah, I'm feeding my cells. I'm feeding my body, my tissues, but I'm also feeding all these little guys. And it's just, Yeah. Just brings another right. sort of uh, dimension to to what you put on your plate and in your face. For sure, I like
0: uh, I do like that she. We were we were talking about that because, yeah, I think uh, I think eating and then not eating or just like it's a way to kind of take control over your body because sometimes I think cra- I mean we talk about it here today but like yeah cravings coming from the bugs that are in our. In our gut, um, yeah. Sometimes it feels like they're running the show, and you've got some pretty strong cravings, or, or something going on, or or a health con- underlying health condition that might be causing certain cravings. And that so, taking control and thinking about food from not just a caloric oh, this is just energy for me to burn and, and use. Thinking of it as information for our DNA and our cells, and how uh, kind of this amazing feedback loop we we get to have with nature through eating food. And then I guess on the food note, uh, this is this is the second time in a row here, really recently where our guest has mentioned um there's only three major meat processing plants in canada so uh another reason to hunt perhaps another reason yeah well yeah shh don't say that right isn't that no i'm kidding no of course not i i I encourage anybody to get out and and procure their own wild food for sure no but it's just interesting because yeah we talked with dr Brennan vogel um Environmental scientist and uh, climate change adaptation researcher, and he had mentioned that from a standpoint of food security. And then here today, uh, I guess in, I forget what the purpose was for mentioning that. But I'm just thinking of like um, sterilization and processing of our of our food, and just how centralized that's become. And then, yeah, like again, thinking about the lack of um, not to say we want back, certain bacteria as Involved in that process, like E. coli I would not, not Trichomonas. Yeah, we don't want those ones. But I'm just saying, being involved in, and again, like I'm thinking of all the bacteria I pick up from hunting, from field dressing a deer. Like, just think about the the diversity. And yeah, I mentioned that here today. So, um, yeah, that was a segue into into that. But other than that, um, yeah. Well, I mean, what I like what What I like
1: ahead. about this is such a broad um, field to consider in terms of the research that's there and how nitty gritty it can go. Uh, but you can really simplify it to certain things you can do actionably in your life starting low going slow as we what we talk about and mm-hmm. uh, what Kim brings up at right. the end there and yeah just um it's not it's not changing overnight
0: right um, and yeah just a little bit at a time oh, I think that's uh, important and um well with that said there's not too much more I'm going to say we're going to get right into this episode um I do enjoy some your travel story actually I was going to say that the uh the, yeah, the, the Ganji river. Sipping set. from the Ganji oh, river. Oh my gosh. Somewhere. So yeah, let's stay tuned for that. Cause if, um, if you're not from India, sipping out of the, the Ganji river is probably not the best idea. And you'll hear why here in this episode. Um, other than that, uh, Kim mentions chicken rentals with her local CSA. And, uh, that's something I had never heard about. So I'm just going to reiterate how awesome that sounds. And I, I would like to get my hands on some rental chickens. Me too. Yeah, you should. You got you got plenty of space for them up there, but anyways, without any further ado, I give to you guys the episode with Dr. Kim Brettz on rewilding our gut microbiome. Enjoy. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, self help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Kim, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much for having me. I'm super excited to talk about the microbiota and all things fun related to it. Right? Yeah, I know. I think it's a perfect time
0: to dive into this topic, specifically in regards to soil, because I've had my hands in soil lately. So I'm just thinking of all the microbes I'm interacting with as I'm planting my garden this time of year, right?
2: I absolutely thought my mother was a crazy person for her love of gardening and it was mainly flowers and shrubs and other plant things, not necessarily vegetable based. And I spent most of my adult life hoping to have the the least to do with gardening although I love the outdoors in general and I read a study about the fact that gardening and and a lot with vegetables and stuff like that that a lot of the benefit was actually coming from the soil and especially some theories around depression and anxiety and I literally just thought okay I am going to be a gardener. And I turned it into my small, tiny backyard has all of a sudden become, I grow quinoa and my love of weird heirloom tomatoes and nice. knowing that I can have my own food, but I'm also in the soil. Um, having it, the weather getting better right now is so exciting for me. Yeah.
0: It's a double-edged sword of goodness as I, as I always say there, whether we realize <laughs> it or not. And yet yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic. I mean, we were just kind of chatting, Richard and I were Nerding out on this topic. I know it's something near and dear to you. And I think it's an interesting time, really, to be discussing this because mm-hmm. I mean, the scientific understanding of bacteria and human health has come a long way since the germ theory, which basically is, is saying that, you know, germs are the cause to so many diseases. And then, mm-hmm. you know, in comes what I've been keen on researching in the past was the hygiene hypothesis. And maybe it's the fact that we're too sterile not nowadays. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, through our big egg farming practices, it's through uh, food processing practices, you know, even down to birth. And, you know, I think it started to make a lot of progress in kind of the mainstream uh, consciousness. And then all of a sudden, in comes coronavirus. And, you know, just the other day, I was seeing a video of somebody uh, in an Asian country, and they were showing the kids going to school, and they're basically getting fogged with like a fogging machine, and mm-hmm. like sanitizing their ha- their hands and, and feet and everything else. And I'm thinking, geez, what the heck is going on here? So, I mean, it's a rapidly evolving field. And I mean, I enjoy it because it's so nuanced. And I feel like, um, you know, it's specific to bioregion, it's specific to lifestyle, lifespan, there's different microbes at play. Um, So as I was mentioning before, I kind of started to study uh, the health benefits of fermented food in my PhD. And I was studying Mm -hmm. with Gregor Reed at the uh, Canadian R&D Centre for human microbiome and probiotics at Lawson Health Institute and as soon as I kind of got into his world and I mean this is the man who had has basically given the definition of probiotics as soon as I jumped into that I was like oh no this is way too complicated so you've been studying this for the last 20 years when it's kind of really come up and gotten into the mainstream so tell us first I guess how what got you interested in the microbiome and health
2: And it's probably not what people are expecting. So I did graduate almost 20 years ago as a naturopath, but the concept of the microbiota wasn't a thing then. Um, We learned about good bacteria to a certain extent in the sense that if someone takes an antibiotic give them a probiotic because it's magical unicorn good Um, we really didn't have a huge understanding beyond the fact that when people took antibiotics we would see that they might get gastrointestinal disturbances or you might get a woman who a couple weeks later got a vaginal yeast infection but we didn't know very much Um, and I always, I always look at the research, just doing a quick PubMed search on how many studies, if I do gut microbiota, are out in any given year. And there were about 13 in the year that I graduated. Now there's five, six, 7,000 that you can find per year. Um, so it wasn't on my radar at all. I was doing a lot in women's health, um, as naturopaths often do. And then in 2008, 2009, I was actually approached by a pharmaceutical company to be on their advisory board. And I remember getting the email asking me, um, to come in and meet with them. And at first I just thought it was a friend of mine sending a fake email. Um, and then once I realized that this was actually happening, I really had to figure out, first of all, what did they want? And why did they want to work with a naturopath when they're a pharmaceutical company? And second, can I work with them because they're a pharmaceutical company? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went in to meet with them and they dealt with strain specific probiotics that they only worked with gastroenterologists at that point and they recognize that naturopaths has we're looking at this area a lot more heavily um and so eventually, with, with talking with them and looking at what they were trying to do around education, um, getting the message out beyond sort of the gastroenterologist, it was something that I felt actually very comfortable with working with them. Um, and that's where I started working more heavily in the gut microbiota. Nice. And because I was doing so much speaking um, to naturopaths, but also within other healthcare professions, including um, the family doctors, the pharma the dietitians. it It was bridging so many areas that, I all of a sudden just started um, doing consulting for other supplement companies or lab companies, and and really focusing my practice that way. But I am just so focused on education and how important this area is that it's just snowballed from that right. time.
0: And it is; I mean, it's such a multidisciplinary kind of field. I mean, and you're getting pressures from whether it be supplementation, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and like my into this was through a kombucha company, right? So you're seeing yep. pressures and, and research just coming out from so many different angles. Um, Yeah, it makes it quite, quite complex without a doubt.
2: Yeah, yeah, but it really it's because I started working in pharma that I I got into this area. So I feel like I was actually really, really lucky with that, because I hit it at a time where the microbiota was really taking off. And we started to get these really interesting proof of concept ideas around um, things where you could transfer the bacteria from the gut of someone with anxiety into a germ-free mouse. And all of a sudden you could transfer those anxiety traits into, um, into the mouse. And it was just something that there were so many people who were saying that's absolutely not possible. And now we're at the point that the, the gut-brain connection and the microbiotic-brain connection is just sort of casual knowledge for, for many people, even in the general public at this point.
0: Right. And I think what's really interesting is that, um, yeah, like we evolved with these microbes in our environment, Mm. right? So we're in this interesting time, you know, and I mean, through things like horizontal gene transfer, yeah, we essentially learned how to evolve with the environment around us. So we actually picked up bacteria that help us ferment and digest certain nutrients. And I mean, thinking of like the apple tree, what's always perplexed I I have done a talk before actually at the Guelph Organic Conference on fermented foods and health. And Mm -hmm. I always found it my question was, did we domesticate the apple tree or did the microbes on the apples domesticate us and have us plant these trees throughout you know the whole earth essentially right so it's just amazing the interplay between these so if you could maybe take us back a little bit and how did we evolve with these bacteria in our environment to become you know who we are today and why is it important to our health here today
2: well and i always ask the question of are we home to the approximate 40 trillion bacterial cells that we tend to host, which is the newer number that they've come up with recently, or really are we just a shell to keep all of these bacteria alive at this point so that they can do the stuff that they want to do to stay alive. Um, So it really is something that we have seen in the studies that we have co-evolved with these bacteria and we have this interaction with the bacteria that really seems to, determine how we are going to function as humans. And I always look at it from the perspective that even if we're using this newer number of having 40 trillion bacterial cells that live in and on us, that is technically still more cells of our own human body. And that's always an entertaining party (laughs) fact for people who like facts about bacteria, which obviously is all of us. Um, But when we move beyond that, and we understand that those microbes, and we talk about the bacteria more, but it's about all of the microbes, um, those microbes are going to do things that change how we function as humans. So we're in this symbiotic relationship where we provide them with a house and food, and then they take the food that they can use and they turn it into gases and chemicals through fermentation that will change how we are as humans. So that may be bad things like infections that we thought about sort of as the original germ Theory of things. Um, But it may also be doing things that are pro inflammatory or um, can cause cancer or change our mental health or change our blood sugar control. And it can be really good things as well. So when we see the fact that humans now, really, the vast majority of us live in a built environment. So we are in urban centers. We think now in North America, it's at least 80% of people are living in an urban environment as compared to in the 1850s. I think it was at about 13% of people. We're losing that exposure to that early um, bacteria because we're not on farms, we're not exposed to animals, we're not exposed to the soil. Um, Even prior to COVID, a lot of us were afraid of nature. Um, The biggest nature thing that we may get is our summer vacation where we go to the beach or we go camping or um, we're exotic and we go to Costa Rica to a yoga thing. Whatever it is, that may be our main exposure to nature and most of us spend 90% of our time inside We know that that early exposure does allow um, some of our systems to get set up in how they're going to function. So how we have inflammatory responses or allergic responses, and we're seeing that if you compare us to sort of this so-called hunter-gatherer groups or individuals who live in lower socioeconomic status countries that we have lost a lot of diversity and richness in our bacteria. And we are relating that to the fact that we are seeing, and um, COVID corona aside, we are generally seeing less worry about um, people dying from infections, but more issues with chronic inflammatory diseases or more hyper-responsiveness of the immune system when we're seeing more allergies and asthma and eczema, or more autoimmune conditions, which is kind of at the pinnacle of that, where not only could we be fighting against a tree or grass or a food like peanuts or eggs, but we're actually fighting against our own human cells inappropriately. And that's what we're seeing that we're kind of losing when we're losing that interaction with the external um, microbiota through the soil and the world at large.
1: So that's what we talk a lot about on this show in terms of the lens of rewilding, right, is getting back in touch with nature. The term hormesis comes up quite a bit in terms of those stressors that initiate resilience in the system, be it exposure to heat or cold or exposure to these bugs. And so in Mm -hmm. the intro, Sean was sort of mentioning that hygiene hypothesis and we're way too sterile and we're sending kids to school sprayed down with mist and... Mm -hmm. But then there's the extension of that, which you've basically just touched on, which is that old friend hypothesis, right? And how that initiates immunoregulation and all these things and mitigates inflammatory responses Um, really has a lot to do with our indigenous microbiota, right? Like what Mm -hmm. are we interacting with and how does that serve all these systems in our body, right? Um, And so... Is it a bit of both? Is it a bit of the hygiene hypothesis? Is it a bit of the old friend hypothesis where we're not exposed to the dirt? Are we seeing this sort of uh, stacking up of problems at the moment?
2: I think it absolutely is. And I don't think we're ever going to come down to the one individual thing that is is causing this problem. Um but it, I think it is the cumulative effect of all of these changes. And I'm someone who, as a naturopath, I am super happy to live in an environment that we have medications and life-saving techniques. And I, I personally prefer to have indoor plumbing and the things that we, we're, we have in sort of our modern lifestyle, but there is a compromise that happens. And I remember that idea that came out with... Um, when they realize that H. pylori, the bacteria that is related to um, gastric ulcers, was more of the problem or was the problem as opposed to that stress idea. And then it became the idea that, well, a good H. pylori is a dead H. pylori. So let's just kill it um, without sort of looking at, are there other implications that happen if we kill that? Um, Because when we look back, we know that we've evolved with H. pylori for an exceptionally long period of time. And there are studies that are indicating that maybe it's part of how we set up tolerance so that we don't have the allergy side of things or asthma. Um, but it's really hard when we're looking at this giant ecosystem of, you um, it's not just a Petri dish of one thing necessarily. So it's very difficult to say this one thing is causing this one disease and therefore the best scenario is to kill it before we actually understand fully what's happening. Um, But that's kind of been our methodology because germs are scary. Uh, It is absolutely something that the way that we have been trained, even in healthcare as naturopaths is that yes, we care about our microbiota unless there's a scary um, infection that's happening. And then we want to kill it. Now, we may want to kill it with herbs, but our role and sort of that idea that germs are bad is still the first thing is, let's kill it. And then we'll try to figure out how to make things better after the fact. And that still may be the best option that we have at this point. But that's not been the way that it's worked in the long term. So we are killing off things, sometimes intentionally like H. pylori, without knowing the implication. But in many cases, our urban environment and our exposure to chemicals and mass agriculture and changes in the water and all of that sort of stuff has absolutely had us losing bacteria that we don't even know what we've lost at this point and then how that affects our health.
1: Yeah, and so I'll second that too, because I'm about 10 years behind you in the naturopathic education uh, yep. paradigm. And ours was, you know, treat the gut. Okay, great. Probiotics, and that was what we were learning in school. But the nuance wasn't there yet. It was just starting to come out as I stepped into to practice. Yep. Um, and so, yes, definitely that template of, oh, we know that there's dysbiosis. We know that we want to correct that. Um, but so going in a little bit blind, little bit shotgun approach and so it's really exciting to see this uh, area of study emerging I think it's raising more questions than giving answers at this point perhaps but I'm not as deep into yes. it as you are in terms of the research um, but this kind of brings me to just an ex- maybe talking about some examples so we're also we want to talk about sort of the relationship of the soil and the bugs and the, and what's happening in the soil and we know that for example, Worms are very helpful in the soil, right? They yep. basically build the soil and that's like, Oh, are there worms in our gut that might be helpful as an example? Cause it, worms, <laughs> it, that's something that's like horror movie. I see it.
2: It is. Right. Yep. And it is something that ate I sometimes use this as a shock example on things, but it's actually something that there is some pretty decent research that's out there right now that we see that individuals who live in countries where they are going to be exposed to helmets or worms um, and have these infections that they then eventually fight off, that their ability to have better um, inflammatory responses where if they need inflammation in the body, they can turn it on. They do a great job with that, but then when they don't need it any longer, it turns back off. The same thing with the immune system. They can mount a great immune response, but then when they don't need to any longer, they don't continue with a hyper-responsiveness. Um, and it's something that we're seeing the opposite in North American or higher socioeconomic status countries where... Um, We do think that because we're lacking some of this early exposure to some of the sort of bugs in our environment, that we don't have that training happen. And we see that in general, we're getting this sort of low level inflammation that's happening as a generalization that can turn into many more chronic inflammatory conditions, or that we're not turning off our immune systems appropriately anymore. Um, So they actually have some studies, and I haven't looked to see about any recent ones, but they've had some studies using worms or helminth ova. So we give the eggs to individuals who have chronic inflammatory condition like um, Crohn's or colitis and see that that can be part of turning off that inappropriate immune and inflammatory response. Um, So that obviously sounds horrifying, Mm. um, but it actually is something that we think could be a missing part of what is happening to us, that we're just not exposed to the things that humans have been exposed to as they've evolved and by all of a sudden taking away these major, major parts of how we function that it's, it's not working out for us. Yeah.
1: And then there's, so there's a flip side of that chronic low grade inflammation because we haven't been immunoprimed by these
2: mm-hmm.
1: worms, for example.
2: But then what <laughs> happens
1: when the superworm comes along and we're in that state? What happens? So uh, I'm going to yeah. just paint a little story here of my time in India. So it's a very good example of a good Western story. guy going to India. <laughs> there, there's lots yeah. of stories, but I won't go into all those. But I, I, I ran into a, a Japanese fellow and we were uh, we were traveling together for a while, and he ended up telling me the story of his experience at the Ganges River in India. Which twenty years ago, the Ganges is a really auspicious place in India. There's uh, where a lot of people are cremated. There's a lot happening on this river, highly populated, and 150,000 times the allowable count of fecal coliform matter, so poop and stuff mm-hmm. in the river, <laughs> as per the WHO sort of standards of safety. Yeah, so really polluted and. But uh, the people living along the banks of this river are engaging with that river. Polluted in our terms, yeah. Yeah, in our yeah. terms, mm-hmm. in the, yeah. right, in a Western sense. Yeah. Drinking it, doing their prayers, uh, cleaning their clothes in it. This Japanese fellow sees people drinking it. Oh, it's a holy river. He takes a sip. Oh, no. <laughs> and his, his story goes on to say, his basically, his kidney started to shut down. He started to pee mm-hmm. black. Yeah. And he luckily, he didn't kind of go away of the dodo bird there. But that's a really stark example of indigenous microbiota, like bugs in our guts, that resilience, that the the, the people who live in constant interaction with that space and place, how they can adapt and respond. And then you sort of plop yourself in there and whammo, right? And so...
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It is something that... um, we are not exposed to things. So we are not training our body to be able to fight things at a a certain point. And that that becomes really, really difficult when we're exposed to things that our bodies are not normally exposed to. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of riding this line of we use medications and things to kill off the things that our immune systems can't fight. And then But we're also trying to avoid exposure, and then we potentially just increasing our risk for inflammatory responses and hyperimmune responsiveness as well. And I've seen it's starting to come out right now in the coronavirus COVID reporting around the fact that because of this increase in use of disinfectants and anti it's usually antibacterials that people are using, even though this is a virus that we're talking about, that we are likely increasing our risk for antibiotic resistance. But extrapolating from that, if that's more likely, we are also more likely killing off things in our microbiome in our goal to stay healthy. And I think that's where there are absolutely appropriate times to be using these chemicals, but we're also getting the information that soap and water is great the vast majority of the time when you're able to use that. So maybe you don't need to be using hand sanitizer 18 times a day if you're socially isolating in your house right. and you could just use your regular bar of soap at that point.
0: Right. And I think that's just it. There's going to be so many different outcomes from this. And obviously, it's too early to hypothesize or or speculate. But even just thinking of, you know, staying indoors, as we were mentioning, uh, and and the science kind of also shows how important it is to interact with our environment at a young age. So Uh young kids who are stuck inside in, say, large cities, as as many do live, it becomes, you know, essentially problematic down the road. So what what exactly are we um, setting ourselves up for?
2: Yeah, and I think we've seen sort of ideas on what can be happening. Um, And and that for for me, working in the area that I do and reading what I do read and, and talking to the researchers who are in this area, it's scary to extrapolate what may come from this. But I also understand that that choices are being made to protect individuals right now. So I think we're sort of trying to balance our personal responsibilities on things. But it's easier when you live in the suburbs where you have an easy to access backyard and there's a trail that's open and you have a stream that's around and you go out on a great scavenger hunt and you're planting things. Like it's, it's, There's a lot of people who do not have that ability to do that and we often forget that. Yeah.
1: And so it's almost yeah. like, uh, you know, if you had a case of a, a really extreme infection clinically, you'd be like, yeah, let's get some antibiotics going and then we'll clean up the mm-hmm. mess after. And it's kind yeah. of, hopefully, you know, we shift <laughs> gear a little bit once we get yeah. through this crisis piece and start to think a little bit more along this microbiota, the microbiome, how everything's interacting, how we can build resilience in that, um, yeah. you know, just eat some dirt.
0: Eat some dirt. Yeah. <laughs> well, just the other day, I had seen a, a, my 18 month old nephew. Uh, they sent me a picture of him helping mom and dad garden, mm-hmm. and so he has a big handful of dirt. And I'm thinking, like, oh, there's a meme on the internet in the making right there, where you know yes. this guy, the little man with the the cure in his hand, um, so to speak. But I feel like that's just it. We are forgetting that. And after this time, I think my concern is that this. Uh, Fear essentially kind of lingers in us as we get back to interacting with one another and then the natural world, and we really are forgetting that we had this symbiotic uh, evolutionary. We've been doing this evolutionary dance for some time with these bacteria, and they are super important. And I mean, actually, to 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 the point, actually, to your story, I'll I'll have to share my travel story (laughs) because for me, it really it really made me ask the question: What exactly am I? As far as biologically speaking, I had gone to Costa Rica. Uh, about a month after um, having a surgery where I had to be put out under um, anesthetics. And I was, so I was out. And obviously in that time, there's potential, f- the back the uh, antibiotics that I had taken, obviously i wiped my gut out. And then about a month later, I had a trip to Costa Rica. So I had gotten sick one day while in Costa Rica. Um, and then through some herbal remedies that actually... Richard had prescribed. Thank goodness, um, yep. I was able to overcome a uh, essentially this worm that I had seen leave my body uh, during a colonic uh, hydrotherapy <laughs> session. I had seen a, about a two-inch worm leave my body. So a long way of saying, like, oh my gosh, what am I? And now, obviously, feeling a lot better from being sick. That's quite the you know quite the illness to have to to overcome. So I had felt great, but um, even into so I hunt for food, and even when field dressing a deer. Um, seeing worms interacting like in their stomachs and just kind of getting this idea like, wow, I can see why um, science or modern biomedical uh, paradigm doesn't necessarily want to embrace this because we still don't know what's going on inside of our bodies until we can actually see it. And I feel like the literature is very similar in that um, just because it's confusing, we're not letting it fully, um, you know, change the way we, we practice, I guess, so.
2: Well, and it is an entire paradigm shift that all of a sudden we are not just thinking about our own cells because that's the way that we've looked at everything. How do we look at liver disease through the lens of the cells in my liver? How do we look at how a medication works through a tissue study or looking at blood markers, but forgetting that everything that comes into our body is going to interact with the microbiota that is in the gut, which is where the vast majority of our microbiota is. So If we're not taking that into um into account we are missing out on basically half of our health at this point but we've never done that before so all the studies that were done previously they're not necessarily going to be redone they're not going to want to look through this lens and this this lens is changeable so my cells are my cells my dna is my dna but we have this changeable microbiome which is really confusing um They actually did a fascinating study, um, I believe it's out of China, that they looked at healthy individuals to see what their microbiome looked like. And I think they got a thousand people. I think as well, they had to reject 97% of the people who applied because they weren't allowed to have... Diseases. They weren't allowed to be taking medications. They didn't smoke. They didn't drink. If a parent had died, they had to be over the age of 80. Like there were all these criteria that um, most people in the world, even sort of our standard, what would be considered generally healthy, um, wouldn't meet those criteria. And what they found was basically. Anyone who fell into this healthy group had very, very similar microbiomes, especially over Mm -hmm. the age of 30. And we've always looked at aging from the perspective that we lose diversity and richness in the microbiome that contributes to the aging process and increased inflammation and immune changes and all of this sort of stuff. But if they looked at a 30-year-old and a 100-year-old who met this healthy criteria, they basically had very, very similar microbiomes. Um, and, and that's a really interesting thing to consider because we often look at it from the perspective of um, we – we see the negative stuff that's happening in the microbiome, but it's also something that what can we figure out how to keep this healthy microbiome? Um, because if it is changeable and, and mutable, then that's something that we can work with, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Now we're heading in the other direction, unfortunately, that we're losing diversity and richness and going towards more pro inflammatory chemicals being produced by the microbiome. But we're seeing that that does not have to happen, which is, is very hopeful to me.
1: So can we maybe switch gear a little bit and talk about how can we affect that? So, uh, in our own physiology or in our own bodies, and you know, we're not looking to give out specific advice here, but some basic principles.
2: Yeah. And there are some really basic things that I think are, are truly important. Um, the first one is absolutely we need to get outside. Um, And when we can't get outside, we can often do things that we could grow vegetables on our balcony or start sprouting or... um, make sauerkraut in our house like there's things that we can do that we can be exposed to some of the microbiome that we would have traditionally been exposed to but if we can get outside on a much more regular basis um, and that can be a park or your backyard it's great if you can get outside into sort of the more wild nature more frequently but I think that is absolutely paramount. Um, And if we can use less chemicals in deliberate ways, so when we need to absolutely, you've got a child who has gastroenteritis, um, you go to town um, on what you need to use at that point. But uh, normal hand washing and things like that are, are great most of the time and avoiding using chemicals that are going to kill more of our bacteria is important. But I think that the day-to-day thing that we actually can do and affect our microbiome is choosing to eat for our microbiome and not just for our own human cells. And I think that's something that because we've always worked under the germ theory and the idea that germs are bad and germs are going to kill me, we haven't come from the perspective of The food that I eat not only is going to provide my own human cells nutrition, but it's actually going to be providing nutrition to the cells. And that can change the balance of the good and bad bacteria that we have and promote better health. Right. And on the
0: topic of diet, can we maybe touch on the role fiber has played throughout (laughs) human history and exactly what's going on there with uh, digestion? like fiber that's not being digested and it's ending up in other areas of our body and, and why that may be as an evolutionary from an evolutionary lens anyways.
2: Yeah. Um, and I fiber is probably one of the most complicated food, um areas that is actually out there and the lack of research on fiber is horrifying to me unless you're Um, trying to
0: sell like a brand cereal or what have you then there's exactly (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) yes no very
0: very confusing and yeah all all like from 40 50 grams a day down to nothing and everything in between so yet another very confusing area of, of nutritional science yeah
2: It definitely is. So I find that hugely frustrating. We're starting to get more information. um, But another one of the studies that I found fascinating was one of the um, Native American groups out of the US, they were finding on average that they were having over 200 grams of fiber a day. Mm -hmm. Um, So people will often talk about sort of paleolithic sites and I'm going to eat mainly meat and and things. And and it turns out when we look at the actual studies in the paleofecal samples where we kind of get an idea of what people ate and, and what kind of microbiota balance they had at that point, generally we see that humans have evolved with quite a lot of fiber. Right. Um, the paleo-style diet was not a ton of broccoli and cauliflower. That wasn't a food at that time. There was a lot of cattails and ferns and mm-hmm. and really fibrous sort of foods that were being eaten. Um, So Fibers, there's, there's a lot of different fibers that are there, but one of the main ones that we see in a lot of plant-based foods that tend to have a lot of health benefit have fermentable fibers in them, which means that the bacteria are going to be able to eat them. So first, we don't break them down completely as humans, so we don't absorb them into our body. The molecules are too large, so they stay in the gut, and that's what the bacteria end up eating, and then they turn it into gases and chemicals that change how we function as humans. So when we look at the westernized diet, our diets are generally very very low in these types of fibers. Um so as a whole and that that is for sort of that standard north american diet that people kind of criticize all the time rightfully so, that involves a lot of processed and packaged foods in the sense of microwave pizzas and um, getting a a takeout taco and eating, eating cookies all the time. But we also see it really heavily in some sort of Healthier fad diets where you're eating gluten free. So, all of a sudden, you're eating a ton of rice flour based products, and you've got a lot of um, dietary gums that are being added to make it into something that is a more palatable version of foods. And so, we're seeing that there are many healthy diets that can, or sort of healthy style diets that can end up being very, very low in fibers. And we're not feeding the bacteria either, um, which shifts things generally into a negative direction. And we see in those those sorts of diets that we have lower production of something called butyrate a lot of the time. So that's a chemical that one of the bacteria tend to make that is anti-inflammatory it's one of the main fuels that the gut cells itself is going to use we see it can be related to mental health disorders um lowering risk for cancer so we see that butyrate levels tend to go down in these fiber lacking diets we see that the butyrate producing species themselves tend to go down in those environments and we we shift towards more pro-inflammatory bacteria environments um which is pretty scary with that. So it is something that when people, I get the question all the time for what, what, do I eat? Like, Mm -hmm. am I paleo or am I keto or am I vegan or what am I? Mm -hmm. And it turns out I'm nothing. Um, I am absolutely nothing. I may eat a paleo meal on the same day that I eat a keto meal Mm -hmm. on the same day that I eat a vegan meal. Um, So I have no alliance. I do not think that there is any one perfect diet that is out there. And all of these things are completely made up. But that being said, the thing that I do is I think that, and I'm not vegetarian or vegan, although but I think that I need to eat a tremendous amount of plant food. That is my focus and vegetables first with a ton of color in there. Um, and I think that's something that the least process that I can do um, with the more the most variety over the season. So it's not that I am changing up and having different vegetables every single day or even every single week, but I do try to have variety over the seasons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I had read a book uh, called The Jungle Effect sometime time ago and yeah basically showing how different hunter-gatherer tribes in in africa um having up to around 30 different uh plant sources a week and that mm-hmm. of course changing throughout the seasons so just just thinking of the diversity that's you know they're interacting with and, and and the feedback right i mean that's just it food is energy and information coming into us so if we're eating this processed stuff sure it might be energy from a caloric standpoint but information yep. with our uh, and then this might be a little bit far out for some but just that, <laughs> that interaction again to eat wild plants i feel like we're getting information in a different way than i would be if i was having maybe something that's cultivated in through conventional farming, even if organic, but I just feel like there's something there beyond just the fiber that we're benefiting from anyways.
2: It's so much and we're not going to get it into a supplement. It's not going yeah. to be that we have one special drink that I know the tech guys would love to be invented or the one that has been invented already where they've put in some fiber and they put in some nutrients and they put in some fat and and we're thinking that that's going to do it. Um, the, the information that we get from food from the the phytochemicals so the plant chemicals that we don't fully understand the interactions between them um, the the ways that plants um come up with the ability to fight off certain um, pests that they're able to do and their responses these are things that we interact with when we look at the phytochemicals um these um a lot of the antioxidant sort of um, chemicals that come into the body most of them are not absorbed in the small intestine. So 95% of them aren't, and they need to be biotransformed by the bacteria before they can do the stuff that they're supposed to do. Um, So if we're messing up that system and we don't have the bacteria there to do that, we can be losing that balance. So I think people think that just taking a supplement is going to help this or having a special drink is going to help this. And I think it's more... um, the diversity in our diets help with the diversity of of our microbiota.
1: So can we take that a step step down or out in terms yeah. of the whole soil piece, right? We're going to we're going to focus on eating, but if it's coming from this depleted oh, yeah. microbiome of the soil, then I mean that's mm-hmm. that's going to stack up on itself and we're going to be eating foods and we're going to be getting all the rainbow colors of all the different foods into us. But if they're coming from a depleted soil like soaked in roundup we're missing what's happening?
2: yeah yeah and i think we don't know enough about this but yeah. I, I feel generally intuitively that there's a huge problem with that and we are seeing in general that when we're looking at mass marketed food um although I realize that that's the way the system is set up right now for most people who are not able to access some of the the food that I consider to be so vitally important, but for many people would truly be a luxury and not terribly easy to access. Um, It is something that I think we're missing things within there. And especially when we look at Mass farming and monoculture, and the number, the the quite low number of foods that the average person eats throughout their adulthood, um, with that just repetition of the same thing. But then you're looking at the fact that. Antibiotics are often used somewhere in the system. Those antibiotics are getting into the soil or they're coming out through the manure. That's what's being used on a lot of the um, produce crops. Like it's just, there's so many things that are concerning. And that's why, again, even having the tiniest backyard in the entire world. I try to do as much intensive gardening as I possibly can with raised beds and, um, square foot. And there's again, the quinoa growing in my front yard as a grass. Um, like it's just these things that I'm trying to do where I can control my own soil. Um, I have the tiniest little grow up grow-up system for my tomatoes and basil and stuff like that in my kitchen. Um, But even even those little bits, I think, can be great for our health, but also great to send a message as to the fact that what is happening isn't working. Mm -hmm. And even now, we're seeing that within COVID, that this is not working to have three manufacturing plants for beef in the country it does it this does not make sense when it falls apart it falls apart massively not just from a health perspective which obviously it has that but just from an economic logistics point of view it is not making sense
1: and that's what's exciting about this field of uh, study in the microbiome because we're human centric Right. We like Mm -hmm. we're kind of at the center of the universe and our and the way, you know, humans I'm speaking broadly here. Right. But we we study the microbiome and we start to see, oh, it's this real scientific quantitative way of seeing and knowing our interconnectivity. Then that's going to start to spill out into different policies and behaviors over time. If this starts to become an overwhelming amount of information that says there is no debate here. This is the direction we need to go, which is kind of literature wise with 6,000 studies or whatever is it's mounting. So then we could start to extrapolate that out. Okay. It's the human centric thing. Oh, we need to work on our microbiome so we can survive.
2: Yes.
1: Extrapolating that. Oh, we need to think of the soil as the gut of mama earth right. because it affects mm-hmm. our gut. And so I remember hearing you speak previously and saying, when you started naturopathic school, you, you know, basically you liked your, your Cheese and your pasta, yes. right? And you hated vegetables, <laughs> and now you're telling I me <laughs> about this beautiful quinoa front lawn. Yeah, sounds so yes, think of, think of the evolution there,
2: yeah. right? for sure. Yeah. And it is something that I think. I think a lot of the time we think that we're not changeable as hmm. humans necessarily, our habits and our choices and things that we've done. And I do look at me and think about the fact that yeah, I basically lived off of wheat and dairy and chocolate until I was actually becoming a naturopath where I realized I will not fit in here. And this does not actually um, meet my food philosophy and health philosophy necessarily. But even to the point that I sort of look at it and I laugh when I say that I like chocolate, I don't like chocolate. I don't eat dark chocolate. I like sugar. (laughs) Um, And so it's something that I had to start really, really small. Um, I remember that I started with my pasta with cheese in it and I would grate little bits of vegetables into it so that I wouldn't have to chew a big hunk of vegetable that I didn't like, but I started to adapt my my taste buds to it. And then I would finally dice stuff into it. And, And now I think about my lunch yesterday that literally involved mushrooms and onions and garlic, Brussels sprouts, purple cabbage, spinach, tomatoes, Um, and then I had some poached eggs on top and it was literally delicious because Mm. spices make anything delicious. Mm. And then I had a bowl with golden kiwi and blackberries and pomegranate seeds, and it was so much color. Um, but in my heart, I just feel so good that I am feeding my microbiome what it needs. And that feels glorious. Mm. It is so happy for me.
0: Nice. I was gonna say you said you like sugar, but it's the back I think the bacteria in your stomach like the sugar. I
2: do think (laughs) they like the sugar. Yes, I would agree when we look at the research. And that is is a huge change in what we understand right now, is they can be part of our cravings and our appetite. And I'll get people all the time who tell me that they're they're so hungry at night. Um and and we talk about when did you eat dinner, and it will be like two hours before that. You're not hungry. That is not a sig. It's not an appropriate signal that you're getting. But we are getting signaling from places that includes the microbiota, and the more we sort of go off from what they need, the more inappropriate signaling we tend to get, and that can feed those negative habits. So it takes being very deliberate with this. Um, It was the same for me with fermented foods because fermented foods is not something that has sort of the normal westernized taste to it with salt and fat and sugar. Um, It's this weird, funky sort of thing that's going on. And so like you when I started looking at fermented foods I fell down a rabbit hole of that and realized that this is really big but I did realize that I absolutely wanted to be getting more of them into my diet but I hated almost all of them with the way that they tasted right. and I went to this little Korean restaurant near my office all the time and every day they would bring out a little bowl of kimchi and and every day I wouldn't eat it because I thought it was disgusting and then when I started looking at this more, I was like, you know what? I am going to pretend I'm a small child and I will take one bite every day. And if I don't like it after 10 tries, then fine, I will leave it for now. And it took six. Um, and now I love it. And now I it sort of expanded into a lot more fermented foods. But it was something that I had to build a taste for it okay. and get my body to adapt to it. And there can be challenges with that where adding a lot of fiber all at once or adding a lot of fermented foods, or if individuals have IBS or gut issues that making these changes can be negative in the short term or until they get help, because we are seeing that now we're feeding the imbalanced a lot of the time. And so that can be difficult for some people, but going low and slow and, letting your taste buds adapt and finding new fun things. And and those are things you can do with your kids where you grow little mini cucumbers in the backyard, or you make a pizza garden um, where they're growing the tomatoes and basil and the things that they can put on their favorite pizzas. Those are little fun things that can be added in pretty easily. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm glad you said that too, because I think we're, it's an uphill battle because, yeah, we're fighting food processors who are creating these foods in a lab to make us want more of them and, and to, you know, hit on these certain, uh, you know, taste receptors, salty, sweet, things that we evolved mm. with that we're looking for. But um, so, yeah, starting small, I appreciate you saying even knowing where your food comes from as well, because I feel like that's very important to get folks actually, hey, I, I grew this cucumber, so I'm going to eat it. And it just makes a, a huge, huge it's a good
1: sure. rewilding practice for sure. Yeah. But I want to pop back a second around the fermented foods because that's something I wanted to ask you about. Um, so we don't have to go down the rabbit hole necessarily, <laughs> but what's going on with fermented foods? Are we just putting a bunch of good bacteria in our gut? Are we feeding the gut that's the, the bacteria that's already there? What's the gist?
2: So it's funny because I look at a lot of the studies and I think there's different things that different types of fermented foods are doing. So um, when we look at something like a yogurt in North America, it's a it's a pasteurized product that has live active bacterial culture in it. Um, or if we look at a sourdough bread, it's a processed bread that's been cooked. So there's there are questions about how much is going in, how much of that, is that part of the Of what's going on. Um, But we do think that we are giving some bacteria in most cases with the live active bacterial culture. Um, But we also see that the fermented foods are doing other things to the food itself. So if we look at sourdough bread, for an example, where you've got that long ferment time, and it turns out all of us have now become bakers. So um, Mm. yay, sourdough bread. Mm. Um, But it's something that it is breaking, the fermentation process is breaking down some of the, the chemicals in the food that is harder for people to digest. So we'll see that individuals who have irritable bowel syndrome often aren't able to handle regular bread, but they can handle um, a sourdough bread all of a sudden it can make some of the nutrients more bioavailable and easier for us to absorb into the body. So they're doing things that are different. Um, There was also a small study years ago that looked at individuals with celiac disease. So they had been recently diagnosed and they gave them either... regular gluten-free bread or a gluten-free sourdough bread. And they found the individuals who got the gluten-free sourdough bread had faster healing of the inner lining or the lining of the digestive tract. Um, so we are seeing that it seems to be able to have different effects on the gut and on the microbiota. Um, but I think food for food and, um, it's, it's different now. Um, We don't necessarily know exactly for each food, but keeping in mind that humans, again, we have evolved with fermented foods at least for quite a long period of time because we didn't have refrigeration. So it was a way to preserve food um, and is still used in many areas of the world as sort of a normal thing. So many people would have been getting fermented foods on a quite regular basis. Whereas it's a, it's sort of an exotic look at me having kimchi every day for a week. Um, And instead, most of the time, people think about taking a pill form probiotic. But I think it's something that, again, we are missing from our regular life.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that there's the benefits outside of just the bacteria themselves because we don't necessarily know um, from a scientific standpoint anyways, whether or not these Probiotics are even surviving the stomach and and, and oh. you know, getting to where they need <laughs> yeah. to and colonizing. So there's so many other benefits. And like you said, it's it's a it's been a cultural practice. I'll often mm-hmm. say that Western culture killed culture and cultures in the process, <laughs> right? Because um, all these fermented food products, like practices that we evolved with we don't have those in our culture anymore i'm and totally stealing killing, that by the way right yeah no, it's a good one you can, <laughs> you can have that yeah yeah you can you can totally have that one. but um no i just find it fascinating and i'm glad you mentioned the probiotic supplement as well because same thing kind of goes for there we you know there's many other things we can do in our lifestyle. Ra- over and above just what we eat. And I'm even thinking going back um, to things we've done throughout human evolution, and that's breastfeeding and vaginal births, which are another oh, really important thing that can help us colonate and just that skin-to-skin contact, right? So, um, yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that. It goes beyond just the bacteria themselves, right?
2: It really does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, one thing, I guess we're getting close closer to the hour here, and I enjoyed many things about this conversation, but specifically one thing I'm thinking of right now is how we are talking about centralization with um meat uh, mm-hmm. producers and that and it's the same thing around centralization with our our medical system and a focus on pharmaceutical drugs and surgeries and i think just looking here how we could uh have a better or a more symbiotic relationship with so many different uh health practitioners i guess right so this understanding yeah. i feel like is just something that is totally We, it needs a paradigm shift. We're in this spot right now where we have everything stopped. So getting back online, what a great time to kind of start to understand and bring this stuff in rather than fogging our hands with, uh, you know, hand sanitizers and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I just think it's a super important topic all around. Richard, I don't know if you had anything else specifically that, uh, you maybe wanted to ask before we go into some, some closing questions or, uh, no,
1: I feel that uh, I knew we'd touch on most of what was on my list of things to touch on, so mm-hmm. I feel yeah I feel me. really uh, grateful for this opportunity and for you taking some time came to sit down with us and share your extensive knowledge. I mean, uh, you are swimming in the microbiome like not many of us <laughs> are. Yep, and it's uh, just been a real pleasure to be able to pick your brain. Thank you.
2: Well, and I do think that the microbiome is an area that allows um, cross-interaction in healthcare. And I think that's something that is changing at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it's fortunate that we have this understanding because all of a sudden it is something that we're recognizing how important it is to look at some of these other areas. And um, I rec- again, I've been doing this for a long time. I've gotten to work with a lot of companies and, and teach at the university. So I've had really a broad experience with that. But I love the fact that the gastroenterologists that I work with and the family doctors that I work with recognize sort of the value in what they do, but then are able to amazingly refer so we can do the amazing stuff around diet and food and the therapeutic diets that we have around the gut right now and Mm -hmm. probiotics and nutrients and all of that sort of stuff. And I think the recognition is coming at this point Mm -hmm. and this may force it a little bit more, which Mm -hmm. is really exciting.
0: That's true. And I've been looking a lot into the concept of planetary health, which basically is saying that human health is inextricable from our earth and our environment's health, right? Same kind of idea with the bio- biophilia hypothesis so again here's this opportunity where we're seeing this inextricable link and like you say science is actually showing that yeah the diversity in our environment is having a seems to be having a health benefit when we interact with it right so yeah it's an important time to put this message out there so yeah again thanks for thanks for being here a couple more questions though is uh yeah so what what sort of things do you like to do as far as nature connection practices things that get you interacting with the microbes in your environment what do you like to so do? So
2: I am a hiker. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I adore hiking. So it doesn't matter what the season is. I'm lucky enough in regular life to be able to do a lot of speaking that involves travel. So um I constantly am finding the trails that are near me. I might um select my conferences based on are there (laughs) mountains or deserts or forests that I can get to? um, Because I absolutely adore that. Um, I'm lucky enough to live around forests and trails. I have the Grand River literally within minutes of my house. Um, so I am able to get to that sort of stuff really easily. So we bike and kayak and um, that's just part of what I do. Um, I have to admit I'm not a camper though. Um, and I have taken up gardening as well. So that is is one of my things. And I also have a hobby of visiting farms. Um, I love seeing people I totally want to have in my my life where things are slower and I actually have the opportunity to have the pygmy goats and the fancy chickens and all of that sort of stuff. So anytime we have like the rural farm days where things are open, I am there like a small child at Christmas time. It is my happy thing to do.
0: Nice. There's actually a really cool farm. Uh, Richard and I are members of the, of the Cowshare, the food uh, farm co-op and it's uh, eco valley grass fed beef and it's up up your way and uh, fantastic awesome, awesome farm doing things in a very traditional uh sustainable way so yeah something one to check out for sure
2: i love that sort of stuff it's yeah, amazing i got my sister to get rental chickens oh, um, a couple of years ago and that was amazing
0: rental chickens Can yeah csa's
2: explain? csa's have them right. a lot of the time where they come to your house with a farmer and they bring you two or four chickens and they come with a house and all the feed and um, like the the house, you pick it up and it moves so you can have it in different places on your lawn and you get a chicken book and then you get chicken or you get the chicken eggs for the season. But then they take them back over the winter when a lot of people wouldn't be able to really handle the chickens in an urban environment. Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we can do that are pretty cool right now.
0: What a great way to get a little diversity of microbes in your backyard, right? through way.
2: Seeing my niece just hang out in her mm. backyard and just randomly as a chicken runs by, pick them up and sit, sit him in the lap and then <laughs> feed him some melon was one of the best things oh, ever. That yep. is great.
0: That is yep. awesome. And that kind of segues me into, uh, you know, <laughs> speaking of children, I'm, I ask every guest, uh, and I'll ask you the same question. What is your wildest dream for the earth as we go forward here?
2: Um, I think we need to just rethink the way that we are living right now. Um, I don't think our built environment that we are dependent on technology is working. Um, And I would love to see that we are able to have more connection with the outside world Um, and, and that health actually becomes a priority. Um, I get that question of why I'm a naturopath versus an MD or anything else. And I'm obviously not against that, but I think that there's a huge difference between living a long life and dying a long life. And I really would love to see that we have that focus on amazing quality of life, which I think is just inherently interconnected with a healthy earth.
0: Yeah. Thanks for saying that. That's it's a uh... Proper place to share that message without a doubt here on this show because we share that sentiment as well. Um, Kim, tell folks where they can find more about your work and where you're speaking and, and anything like that.
2: So um, I practice in Waterloo, Ontario. We're fairly virtual right now in the way the world is, but my website is drkimbrettsnd.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and try to share a lot of information about gut health, um, especially things changed up a little bit with COVID, um, but we're trying to get back into that. We, We make sure that we have recipes that go up that we let you know, does it have probiotics in it, prebiotics in it? How does it work for certain... certain gut conditions. Um, So we really aim to educate on microbiota and gut health as much as we can.
0: Awesome. Well, make sure that that stuff is in the show notes for anybody who wants to come and find that. So I, I really do appreciate your time here today. Thanks so much for being with Rich and I. And thank you to everybody out there for listening to this episode. If you found it beneficial, as always, please share that with a friend and stay wild. Listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if of course you think they would like it. You can also visit ReWildMyBio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook, at RewildMyBio, and on Twitter, at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay wild.